Jason Waters isn't who you think he is. Sitting across from a guy wearing a Misfits t-shirt with two full sleeves of tattoos and vans on, most would think a touring musician or perhaps a bartender at your local dive. But not Jason. He's the army of one behind Waters Atelier, a custom clothier here in San Diego offering everything from polos to golf in to the three-piece suit you may need for your wedding. With a background in skateboarding and punk rock, he and I share a lot of interest, so I was excited to chat with him. I was also selfishly interested to see what he does considering San Diego embodies flip-flops and board shorts. Much of our conversation was a trip down memory lane on a multitude of levels, and I was excited to talk about the various modes of transportation he and I have enjoyed, from skateboards to Porsches, and from city buses to motorcycles. Jason's done a lot. This was definitely a fun one. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Jason Waters. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate yeah. it. Thanks for doing it, man. Hey, yeah, you're really welcome. Appreciate we're, it. We're finally, we're finally putting it all together. That's right. <laughs> well, are, are we? <laughs> right on, man. Well, usually how we start these things, as you're aware, is kind of where you grew up, what childhood was like, what your parents do, that kind of thing. Uh, well, born in Los Angeles, so spent part of my life there, and uh, as a kid, moved out to Las Vegas for a little bit, and then ended up back in California in the early 90s. Being a kid of the 80s, you know, I grew up in the skateboarding community. What part of LA? Uh, born in Torrance. Oh, in Torrance, and, okay. Yeah, and so, you know, I come from the era of the the banana board, the, you know, cut off shorts, hamburger toes, sure. bombing down hills, going to Manhattan Beach. You know, for a slice of pizza and a Pepsi in the summertime and either, you know, calling your mom to come pick you up later in the afternoon or huffing it on the bus back to uh, uh, Lawndale's where I lived when I was a little kid. And sure. then uh, and then made my way out to Vegas and then, you know, still skateboarding there and then came back out to California. Well, what took you to Vegas then? Uh, Vegas, um, well, that was childhood. So, uh, you know, you go where mom goes. So, uh, so what did mom do? Uh, mom at the time worked at the pharmacy, uh, inside Vons. Okay. And so, you know, we, I was, uh, raised primarily by her and, um, stepdad later on in life. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so was the pharmacy gig what took your mom to Carlsbad or was that stepdad? Uh, that was stepdad. Okay. What did he do? Uh, he was, so I had two stepdads. Uh, the first one was an electrician and the second one was a bus driver. Okay. Yeah. And he drove the, he actually drove the bus that pretty much like all of my skater buddies, um, would uh would ride in san diego you know? so the like the city bus then yeah yeah the city bus so he did that he was in the he was in the navy for a hot minute uh when he was younger and then um he owned a karate studio in texas for a bit and then um out to california for you know later on in life and 
drove the bus for probably, gosh, I want to say the last 25 years of his life. So is your mom still in the pharmacy type business? No, even then? no, no. She retired after my youngest brother was born. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. So, and then, uh, so you were in high school in Carlsbad? Or? Uh, no, no. I was out of school by the time I, by the time I got to Carlsbad. Okay, cool. Yeah. So what were you doing in high school? Just skating mostly and skateboarding or right. ditching school. Okay. <laughs> so you didn't have a job, anything on the weekends or, um, when I was a kid, I worked at the grocery store as a, you know, as a bagger, you know, pretty much the high, you know, high school yeah. stuff just to, just to earn enough money for skateboards you sure know? yeah yeah yeah. Uh, skateboards and tennis shoes because i was going through tennis shoes left and right you know being that age and you know things were tight growing up so it was it, more or less if you wanted something extra you had to you, you had to get a job and yeah figure yeah, out a way to pay for it figure out a way to pay for it and um so it was either i worked at um i worked at lucky's as a bagger um I was a better talker than a bagger. Okay. <laughs> right. I was, uh, then I worked at a place actually across the parking lot. Um, eventually went over to this place across the parking lot called the chicken handler. Okay. And it was a chicken and ribs place. And I learned how to completely dismantle a whole chicken. That was my, that was my job. You know, I had, you know, big heavy duty gloves and a rubber apron and I would just completely dismantle chickens all day long for the barbecue grill inside the restaurant. The food was great, but when I finally quit that job, I probably didn't eat chicken for about three years. Oh wow. Yeah. Or, I'd or imagine. Ribs. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so um so what sort of made you leave that job or like where did you go after that? Um, I left that job because uh, we were going to move out to California. Right? Oh, okay, so, so this was in Vegas. Got it. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. yeah. So this is in Vegas. And so we came back out to California, and I got a job working at a skate shop. And so just did that for a couple of years. Then I bounced around to a couple of jobs because I was just trying to figure out, you know, I'm 18 years old or now, you know, into my early 20s. and trying to figure out what in the hell I'm going to do. And so I bounced around to a couple of little jobs here and there. And then I got into working for foundation skateboards and did a stint with them. And then a stint with silence snowboards. And then after that, I just kind of had enough with the skate and snow industry. And I needed. So were those like marketing out. jobs? Or like when you say you did a stint with them, like what were, what like what were the kind oh, of responsibilities the, that you had? Oh, uh, the stint with um, foundation. Yeah, more of like the production line. Oh, okay. Yeah, so clothing. You guys were pressing boards here. Or? Pressing boards. They're doing embroidery. They were doing a lot of stuff in house, from what I remember. And so they were doing a magazine. Uh, they were doing a girls' line. They're doing a wheel company called Pig. This is this is the inside inner workings of a full blown skate company, and 
you never know like until you see the inside of what a facility looks like because as a kid growing up you just go to the skate shop and they have you know five of santa cruz and five of vision and five of schmidt sticks but when you walk in and you see five thousand it kind of puts things into perspective you're like oh wow this is a major major thing going on here there's millions of dollars being made here i think anytime you can tour a manufacturing facility i feel like you it's undeniable that you're going to gain a newfound respect for whatever it is that's being made there. Like be it shoes, be it cars, be it, you know, snowboards or skateboards. Even when you see the magnitude and then like the human hand aspect of like seeing what is actually touched. Um, it's, I, th- I think there's, there's only one way there, there's only one result really. And that's just to like, really respect that process i agreed uh, go i didn't really understand the full grasp of how snowboards were made until i actually worked for a snowboard company you know when i moved on from foundation foundation what they did is they ordered in a lot of blanks blank decks and blank wheels and then they did a majority of the screen printing in-house there uh, but I didn't see how any of the actual skateboards themselves, the decks were made. Uh, but when I got to working for the snowboard company, I got to see from the bottom up uh, how a snowboard was made. So was Silence producing boards here in like San Diego? Yeah. Yeah, they were so... They must have been one of the very few. Because I think like Never Summer does theirs in Denver. Mm-hmm. I know... If I'm not mistaken, was it LibTech that was out of the Pacific Northwest? Were they LibTech? I think LibTech was at the time. I think Burton was uh, doing their own stuff in house. And then and everything went to China, right? Everything else went to China. Um, and there was a company at the time, now defunct, that Danny Wei owned called uh, Type A. Type A snowboards. I had forgotten about Type A, yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, LibTech made all of theirs as well because i think at the time danny was writing for them or got flowed from them but sure. um that's all that's what a lot of people don't remember about danny was that he was a fairly good snowboarder yeah. <laughs> he if he would have uh decide if he decided to not be a skateboarder anymore and just kind of you know keep it casual <laughs> and and not jump over the Great Wall of China. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he would have been a phenomenal snowboarder or surfer as well. He was a really good surfer. After a while, I started seeing factories closing, companies tightening the ship. So you, you see the resurgence of skateboarding. You see a lot of dollars getting poured in. But with the action sport industry, there is always going to be an ebb and flow, you know, and you got the new hot shit pro skateboarder or pro surfer and everybody gets on the big bandwagon and there's a big resurgence and then dollars get poured in from different sponsors like Mountain Dew and Verizon and all that. And then eventually it starts to fade and companies die down. They tighten the ship, they close, they, halt production they start outsourcing in other countries 
And so I started thinking to myself, I wanted something a little bit more consistent. And I remembered that most of the apparel companies that we were looking up to at the time to, you know, more or less to rip off for our own design for skate clothing was brands like Polo and Ralph, you know, uh, Tommy Hilfiger and DKNY and, you know, I'd say 99% of us either wore Polo, Sport, Cologne, or Calvin Klein, Eternity. <laughs> right. <laughs> CK1. CK1, you know, because that was the that was the one thing that stopped us from being stinky. <laughs> Shout out to my best friend, Chris, by the way. He still rocks CK1. You know, I still have a friend of mine that rocks uh, Drakkar Noir. <laughs> and I wore that when I was like 15. I think that was the the first cologne that I wore. I'm not even joking. I didn't even realize they still sell that stuff. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so, uh, but well, you you kind of alluded to it earlier. You sort of like got over sort of the ax- action sports industry. You were saying so. Like, what what kind of nipped that in the bud, or like what was that breaking point for you? Well, being in the action sports industry, you know, or just being in that culture. Uh, be honest with you at the time it didn't matter what your socioeconomic background was Uh, the common bond that skateboarders had with one another was that they were skateboarders they were misfits of of sort so it didn't matter what race you were didn't matter if your parents were rich or poor at the end of the day the common bond was skateboarding you know, which to me, that was always like, at least I always had something to rely on, you know, when, when things weren't going so well at home, at least I had my skate buddies. Yeah. You had your tribe. Yeah. You had your tribe, but, um, and it's not like this now, but back then it was a very, um, it's a very misogynistic, very homophobic type of community to be involved in. And I never quite agreed with that being, you know, being from a family that's multicultural, multisexual, very diverse, having, you know, having relatives that are gay that I grew up with and also not having an issue with it. You know, there was never a stigma around anybody in my family of them being gay. It was just, that's uncle Bill and that's his boyfriend. Cool. Great. And you move on and you don't think anything of it. So that was openly being talked about when you were growing up. It wasn't like uncle Bill and his roommate or his friend. No, it was because like back then that was usually like, that was the descriptor, right? The roommate. Yeah. The roommate, the partner, the friend. Um, and, that was never, it was, it, I, I, I was lucky enough to have a mom that answered a question when you asked her a question and right. depending on how old you were was, was how much truth you got. So as you got away from that, where did you go first after silence then once you got out of the industry? I went to where... I could feel comfortable about being a freak and a weirdo. And okay. <laughs> that was the retail industry. <laughs> right on. <laughs> you know, 
I always thought the retail industry was really cool. Every time I walked into places like Calvin Klein or DKNY, um, you know, there was always just some cool, hip, trendy, very stylish uh, guy or girl um, working behind the counter. And they, so this is in LA. No, this is down here. This is this is down in San Diego. There was a Calvin Klein store here. Yeah, yeah. There wow. was um, or DKNY for that matter. DKNY and um, so. I just thought, oh, this is wonderful. Um, you know, I love it. And they're so weird and quirky and I want to work here. And so I went to go work for DKNY. So all of a sudden, you know, like I got to comb, comb my hair and smell nice and shave and wear a collared shirt and slacks. And, oh, I have to I have to iron them as well. And it was well, the cool thing too, that like uh, you mentioned earlier, but the interesting thing as well about the retail industry is you get paid to talk. Right. And you like to talk when you were bagging groceries. Yeah. So this was probably super fun for you because you got paid to talk. Got paid to talk. And, you know, my mom said this the other day uh, when her and I were catching up that, you were meant to do what you do now because you always like talking to people for one, you could talk to anybody and you always had an eye for style. Even before you even got into the fashion industry, you always had an eye for style. You always liked the preppy type of blazer and tie look. And that wasn't us growing up you know we didn't have a lot of money and we definitely weren't white collar for sure and she said i don't think you had your first actual collar dress shirt until you were probably a teenager yeah yeah and, and you bought it right right <laughs> you found a way to pay for it. i found a way to pay for it yeah. and i don't remember that because you know that was so many years ago but you know certain things stick out in her memory and um you know she said you always had a eye for it and eventually when it started evolving into the retail industry she was like yeah that's that sounds about right yeah this makes sense this totally makes sense you know keep in mind too like in san diego in general there weren't too many high-end fashion stores to begin with yeah that's why i was like surprised that yeah calvin klein were here but the factory stores i guess maybe a little bit different but yeah um, but sure. the interesting thing back then, the factory stores in that day and age weren't the type of factory stores that that are out there today. Right. Back then, they actually sold the same stuff as the regular store just a season or year late. Right. Now, they do have like direct production straight to the factory stores. And it's... Right. I always think it's funny when you go into uh, Ralph Lauren Polo. And it says, you know, like the sale price and it has the original price. And, and now I just laugh because I'm like, that price was never, the higher price was never an actual price. It was always the lower price. Now it's just, they directly manufacture. Yeah. It was never sold at retail. No, so. no. <laughs> they wanted it to be exactly like their full price retail store. And they designed the inside of them like a full price retail store. And sometimes we would get 
stuff like well within a couple of months of it leaving the full price it would come to our store and we would just sell it so it wasn't even season specific it was just seasons done box it up ship it to the factory store done now this is when donna karen still owned it yeah the, uh, yeah okay so this is late 90s 97 98 okay yeah. so yeah i mean that's kind of peak dkny era i would say late 90s to say like 2000 five yeah 2006 maybe yeah i remember the first time i saw dk and why i didn't know that that was associated with donna karen oh is that right yeah i just thought it was another brand oh that's (laughs) funny which is probably kind of what she probably wanted it to be frankly right just like um you know the diffusion line uh uh-huh and polo and ralph lauren right a lot of people i've talked to other people that thought it was totally two different lines. They're like, oh, I had no idea that it was associated underneath the same roof. That's crazy. You know, and um, that's a whole nother conglomerate. I yeah. worked for them as well. After after leaving after leaving them, I worked for Ralph Lauren. And um, Still at the factory store? Did you? No, no, I went to go work for Full Price. No, where was that? Uh, that was in uh, Vegas. Oh, you went to Vegas? Yeah. Caesars? Yeah. Yeah. So you were at Caesars. I was at Caesars. How long were you at Ralph? It seems like a decade. Oh, you were there for 10 years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So you weren't at, you weren't at DKNY very long then, like just a couple of years maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And so what were those experiences like between Donna Karen versus Ralph? Like what, what were the differences? That was a big, big, uh, big difference. When I was at DKNY, it was more of a, more of like a hang, you know, like we can just go to work and hang and right. have our coffee cups, you know, under the register, you know, sure. Uh, you got a Ralph Lauren. I mean, it's an experience. It's an experience. It's a verbiage. It's, uh, you don't say sure. No problem. You say <laughs> absolutely right away. So there's a certain verbiage and a certain way that you carry yourself, uh, because the people, that walk through the doors could either just be browsing or they can drop a hundred thousand dollars in one shopping session. I was supposed to shadow for a month, which just meant that you make an hourly wage, no commission, no commission, you shadow. So you hang, you keep your mouth shut. And I'd say I was about five days in and in the back of my head, I was just like, fuck this. I've got it. Right. I got it. Like, I don't need it. I, I'm, I'm definitely not going to do this for a month. And now, is that like an aptitude you thought you had for the selling process or just like your product knowledge? Like what it, what sent your mind spinning like that? I, in the back of my mind, I was playing a game. I was playing a game that I knew I was going to win at. And the, the way you carry yourself, the way you tack on different items to sell, um, I just, I knew right away that I, I had it, I had it. Not only that, but in that short amount of time, those five days that I spent with my shadow or, or shadowing the other senior, uh, sales associate, just a really good teacher, really, really good teacher. Are you still in touch with that person? Uh, yeah, I That's am. That's awesome. Actually, uh, he is a VIP host at uh one of the nightclubs out in vegas no way yeah i forget what nightclub it is but he was my 
He was the guy who I shadowed. His name is Devin, actually. That's cool. And I asked him, I was like, hey, can we tell our boss that I've got it? And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, can you just tell him like, hey, Jason's got it and, and he should start going full commission tomorrow. Tomorrow. And right. uh, he said, yeah, sure. Let's go talk to him right now. And we marched into the office and he said, hey, Jason doesn't need to shadow me anymore. He's got it. The GM at the time was this, he looked like a big football player, big dude. Uh, he's from the East coast. He always talked like he had a cigar in his mouth, but he never smoked a cigar. I never saw him smoke a cigar. And he just turned, turned and looked at the both of us and he goes, Oh, you think you're big time, huh? Okay. I want you to do $20,000 this weekend. If you do $19,999, you're going back to shadowing, okay? And I was like, okay, you got it. And it just so happened that on the third sale of the very first day, somebody came in and dropped like $18,000 with me. So I was going to say, this is the interesting thing about working retail in Vegas, yeah. because, you know, given the number of companies that I've worked for, we've usually had uh, an, a shop in Vegas, yeah. regardless of the brand that I was with. The crazy thing about Vegas is you never know who's going to walk in. Yes, like you said, but you never know why they're spending the money. They could have just won 150 grand at the tables. Right. And they just look at this as like, oh, well. No matter what I buy, if I'm under 150,000, it's just like I got it for free almost, right. you know? So, like, the mentality of the shopper there is completely different than any other city on the planet, arguably. Absolutely. So, like, you get the guy that just won 150 grand, or you just get the billionaire who's lost 150 and feels sorry for himself and, like, Right. Wants a consolation prize for putting up with it. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Or he lost 150K and he has to go to the women's section at our store to buy his wife a $20,000 handbag so he can break her the bad news that he <laughs> lost his ass at the table. You know, it was, you definitely got all kinds. Is of, every walk of life yeah. there. To touch base on the, to go back to the very first day that I had, the guy walked in, spent $18,000 with me. And that was the third sale of the day of the first day that I, you know, right. for the weekend. Yeah. So I had literally a total of 12 hours to do $2,000. Right. At Ralph Lauren. Yeah. Which you can do that off of one sale, no problem. Sure. So needless to say, the following Monday. You were on commission. I was on commission, and which was great because... They paid a fantastic commission right off the bat. You they know? always had a great discount policy there, too. They had a great discount policy, and they also had a really good clothing allowance as well per season. You got like a few thousand dollars worth of clothing for free, and they just outfitted you, you know? So within, you know, within two seasons, you know, I had a closet full of, you know, purple label and sure black label and blue label and yeah. all that stuff. But, uh, yeah, working at that location, you definitely got an experience in, um, in etiquette, how to handle yourself, how to stand, you know, um, you pay a lot more attention to your personal style than, than anything because the people that work inside of a Ralph Lauren store, um, 
they're all peacocks. They all want to shine. They all want to look super fly. And so every day was us trying to outdo the other one. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, but it was, it, it was fun though. It wasn't, you know, it was, it was, uh, we all liked, we all liked that camaraderie. We all liked being able to I'm hang sure. out with one another and, you know, well, I think the cool thing too about Ralph is like, you could look as rough as you want and as polished as you want. Cause he offers it right. between double RLs kind of antiquated old school, Western style beat up, you know what I mean? Yeah. On up to purple label. Right. It, that's what makes that fun too, because you could be almost like a different person every day, right? You but can, that's kind of fashion, right? True. You can you can go into at Ralph Lauren. You can go into work either looking like a cowboy or full on, you know, Wall Street rake. Are you a watch collector but having trouble finding something cool and unique? I mean, the last thing you really want is what everyone else has, right? Well, this is where my friend and former Standard Age podcast guest, Tim Jackson, comes in. He and his wife, Jana, own Passion Fine Jewelry in Solana Beach, California, where you'll find an incredible assortment of independent watches waiting for you in their shop and online. And if you're getting engaged, have an anniversary coming up, or simply have another reason to buy jewelry, they have you covered. Passion Fine Jewelry also employs a goldsmith on staff for any custom desires, so you're able to go that route if you so choose. Visit Passion Fine Jewelry when you find yourself in Southern California, but they're also open 24 hours a day at passionfinejewelry.com. You can also find a wealth of information through Tim's blog, independentintime.com, where he covers anything independent watchmaking related, uh, among a plethora of other information, so check that out as well. I've really enjoyed creating these podcasts on behalf of Standard H and sharing each of these personal stories with all of you. We each have goals, and it's the entrepreneurial spirit that inspired me to start the company. You can further support the brand and the podcast by visiting standard-h.com to pick up your choice of merchandise. And as always, thank you for listening. Lastly, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show. It makes a tremendous difference in keeping these things going. Now back to the conversation with Jason. Okay, so just to fast forward a little bit, you you leave Ralph. I leave Ralph and I go to uh, Brooks Brothers in okay. D.C. Because I wanted to go work for the company that Ralph Lauren got his start at. And it was more wound up than I possibly could have ever imagined. It was a... It was... It was, hey, you can be creative. Just stay well within these very, very small parameters. Right. You know, sure. um, and stay well within our aesthetic. You have to wear a suit. There's no way around it. You have to wear, you know, if you're if you're not in a jacket, you're you can get sent home. Sent home, yeah. And um, and the particular environment that I was in was um, it was the wrong culture for me. And, and you were there how long? I was there a couple years. Gotcha. So what came after Brooks Brothers? Huh? A company called Aster and Black. Oh, yeah. And they were, I'd seen their ads. Uh, I remember they were running an ad uh, over and over again with Chad Ochocinco. 
And the suit that he was wearing was just really, really cool. I just remember it being very, very fashion forward. And speaking of peacocks, yeah, super peacock NFL wide receiver enough said, right, (laughs) right. And by happenstance, I meet this guy named Judah. He's like, I work faster in black. I said, Oh, no kidding. Immediately we trade numbers and then we just start talking. He said, I think you should come and work for Astro and Black and uh, I'll put in a good word for you. The founder is a childhood friend and our families know each other. And so I flew out to Ohio. It was such a trip because they came and picked me up in a Bentley. And I was, and he's like, good to meet you. I heard so much about you. Tell me about yourself. And he was quite a quite a few years younger than me oh wow super young guy come to find out that his family comes from a really big retail empire the schottenstein family of columbus they did uh value city dsw footwear american eagle apparel the schottenstein center in downtown columbus is his family's you know namesake incredible yeah um but at the end of the day, I don't care how spoiled you grow up. If you decide to branch out on your own and you become successful at it on your own, at the end of the day, for me, work is work. I don't care how you got there. If you put in the time and you bust your ass and it's successful, nobody can take that from you. And a lot of people sat back and they're like, uh, you know, fucking spoiled rich kid, you know, of course he's going to have a successful business, but he started that company from scratch on his own, started running around with a D ring full of swatches attached to it, trying to, yeah. Trying Cause to, they're a custom clothier for yeah. those who don't know Aster and black, they're not brick and mortar. No, they're, I don't need, did they offer a catalog at one point? Uh, I don't remember. It was all sort of direct. It was relationship based. Relationship based, custom suiting, direct sell. You so it's know. kind of what you're doing. It's kind of what I'm doing now. Yeah. yeah. So they they offered at the time. They were just a sexy company. You know, they were like they were cool. They had a Bentley. They had a Bentley. <laughs> you know, their CEO was. It was the first time I'd ever gotten on a conference call with a bunch of executives and the CEO was dropping F-bombs and just being himself. And I thought he is the head pirate of this crazy ass pirate ship. And I want to like, like, I don't care what my position is at this company. I'll take the trash out. Like, I just want to be a part of this company at the time because it was just fun and all the people that worked for the company were fun and cool and hip and, you know, and, and sexy and exciting. And I thought, God damn it, this is for me and wanted to come back out to San Diego. And so eventually, uh, after working for them for a little bit in DC, I came out back out West in 2011 and started the more or less the Astro and black market on the west coast okay so you brought it out here with you so you were still with the company i brought it to orange county san diego that's where that's i mean as an Astro and black rep 
they didn't care where you sold, you know, it granted any leads that any lead generation that would come in to orange County or San Diego went to me. But if I needed to sell in Vegas or Denver or wherever, they didn't care. They oh, that's didn't care. cool. You didn't have to pass it off to another rep in that city. Right. Your client is your client because, you know, at the time when I went to Astor and Black, I was also bringing over an existing client book as well. Oh, for sure. So I had clients from Ralph Lauren to Brooks Brothers, and I was bringing that into the equation. So, well, and the tricky thing about that too is like when you work with a company that's got like territories, as as you right. may be alluding to, and like where you have to pass it off to X, Y, or Z sales associate because they happen to live near that zip code it's kind of BS only due to the fact that like you as a salesperson have one job and that's to sell. Now, if your client book has four houses, that's not your fault. You know, you've got a penthouse apartment in New York city. You've got a beach house in La Jolla. Oh, and a ski chalet in Utah. You're going to be selling all over the country. So (laughs) those types of people are what we call financially celebrated (laughs) (laughs) for sure. I mean, you know, and, and those, those types of people drive the economic engine that we're all a part of. And at the end of the day, when I worked for Astor and black, their motto was sell, right? We don't care where you do it. We don't care how you do it. Just go sell go sell, 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 and we'll provide the back end support, everything for you. If you need anything, you let us know, but it's your job to go out and sell and, and, and design and have fun with it. So what kind of support did they offer you though? Like were there travel budgets or were you completely just 1099 and like 1099, you can just write off whatever you want. So you yeah. write off your house, part of your house, at least your car, printer ink, paper, whatever you can. Um, But they provided you with lead generation, advertising, support, factory. Uh, Anytime new fabrics came out, they specifically would go to different trade shows or they would go to different fabric houses and pick out what they wanted for the season, have swatch books specifically made with their branding and logos on it. And then when you'd go see a client, it would be like this big presentation. So they supplied all of that for you. Sure. So, you know, I did that for, it came back and I did that for about two years. And during that time, uh, Astor and Black had grown quite large and with a pretty decent sales staff you know, across the U S and they caught the eye of another company, uh, uh, another like investment company. And they sold Astro and black to this company. Oh, I see. And so I had a meeting with the, the client of mine. He was still a professional football player at the time. And he said, I don't care what label is on the inside of that jacket, just as long as you're my guy. And I was like, what what does that mean? And he goes, I don't care who you work for, but reality, you should just start your own company. And I never had, I never had that inception in my head of starting my own company. I always thought that was for people with money. Right, right. 
you know, and I never had a business plan or anything. I did have the factory connections. I had the manufacturing facility connections. I had the fabric connections. And so I thought to myself, okay, well, why don't I just start R and Ding some things? And you called it? I called it Waters Atelier. <clears throat> and when did that start? Uh, that started in uh, in September of 2013, officially. It was just a big, it was a big eye opener. Like, oh, I'm I I don't know what I'm doing, and I should get some help. And so, luckily for me, I had enough entrepreneurs around me that I sold to on a regular basis. I literally had to just go to them and be like, um, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Can you help me? Like, I really don't. Like, I've worked for somebody my whole life. Sure. And now all of a sudden I'm a business owner. I don't know. I don't even know what that meant. Right. Right. So, you know, luckily for my clients, you know, they were like, what do you want to know? And I was like, well, I want to, first of all, I want to know how to not go to jail. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, um, and, and then we can figure everything else out, you know, at a later date, but I just need to get everything dialed in and, you know, the people around me were really, really cool and really supportive. And they're like, so you're going to start your own company? Yeah. Okay, great. I need this, this, and this. So what are the products you offer? Currently, I offer either a made-to-measure, which is, you know, a very general uh, general suiting. You know, I take your measurements. I take all of your measurements. And when we get in a finished product, it is 99% of it is made. And I offer full bespoke services for custom suiting, which means that, uh, you know, obviously anybody that doesn't know the term bespoke, it means, you know, one of one made for you, but it comes in 90% finished and we do a majority of the finished work here in house in San Diego. Uh, so there's, there's more of a, there's, there's, more of a personal touch when it comes to bespoke and it really is truly made for you from the angle of your shoulders to the pitch of the hunch on the back of your neck. I mean, everything is really, really dialed in. So with all that being said, we offer suiting, shirting, uh, blazers, shorts, short sleeve shirt, golf pants, um, to tuxedos. We have, uh, a really good line of, casual jackets for travelers that don't wrinkle. So if you're a traveler on the go and you still want to look sharp, but not break the bank, we have, you know, packable jackets, which are really fun, an array of colors. And I thought to myself, you know, years and years ago, I would love to have a jacket that was comfortable, like a sweatshirt, but look like an actual jacket. And right. So I uh, developed one that, you know, could do that and that I could actually wear all day and doesn't wrinkle. And now, that, is this kind of synonymous with like a sack jacket or like how would you define it? I would consider it like a sack jacket, deconstructed, patch pockets, um, you know. No lining? No lining, except for in the sleeves. Just if you decide to wear a dress shirt with the jacket, I wanted it to be easy to get on and off. Cause I know a lot of standard sack jackets when you 
go to put them on or take them off, you deal with the buttons catching the buttons catching yeah. here and there on the inside of the sleeve of the jacket. So I wanted to make it, you know, super lightweight and also had to have a little bit of stretch too. So when you're getting in and out of your car, getting up and down day to day, you can wear it. And also too, you can wear them with t-shirt jeans and they just kind of go with anything that you, that you throw at them. Sure. You know, and they look good for meetings too. Like mm -hmm. when you look at them, it doesn't look like you're wearing a sweatshirt. looks like you're wearing a really fun constructed blazer. Right. You know, and, um, I also offer this, uh, these shirts. They're one of one. I like to go, I, I like to go vintage hunting so I like to buy dead stock of material that's no longer being made and I'll buy the remaining stock, which is normally anywhere between four to five yards and I'll sit on it. I'll wait until I have a client that I think would look good in it. And then I will make them a fun custom one of one short sleeve sport shirt. And, uh, I'm sure you saw them there hanging up at the scotches and swatches show that I had. Right. Those are all one of one, never to be duplicated again. Oh, cool. So with my clients that have been with me for a while that I kind of know them a little bit uh, on a personal level, if I see a fabric or a fun pattern that I think they will love, I will buy that specifically for them, take a picture of the fabric, and I'll let them know, hey, I'm making, making you the short sleeve one of one. So pricing, as far as this stuff is concerned, I mean, one of one stuff's going to command something different than, say, just a bespoke versus made to measure. And obviously materials going into these jackets being whatever it is, super one tens to on up to whatever cashmere. Yeah. You know, the prices, it's like, you know, sky's the limit. But like, where would you roughly say the pricing starts for you on, say, like a suit versus a shirt versus... Shirting, shirting starts at 225 per shirt, per shirt and suiting starts at 1600. Okay. And that's for jacket and trousers and a blazer or a sport coat blazer. You're looking right around a thousand. Gotcha. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of companies, they all offer a lot of, you know, bespoke made to measure companies, uh, they'll offer, you know, super one hundreds on up. I do as well, but the thing that I tried to to do differently than everybody else is not give somebody an entry level fabric, but have an entry level price. You know, I want be able I want to be able to offer a really higher end product at a good price because at the end of the day they're coming to me for a custom suit. I want to be able to offer them, you know, the, the best product just to start them off with. So, and you're able to achieve that because you don't advertise or like what, how are you able to do that? Well, I don't have a brick and mortar, so I don't have rent. I don't have power or water or employees to pay. When, when a client gets on the phone and reaches out to me, I'm going to go see them. I'm going to see them at their home or their office. So, right. You know, my, my big expense is, you know, my truck to, you know, drive out there and go see them and, you know, spend time with them. But I like it better that way. I would rather go see a client in their home or their office because it helps me 
get to know them a little bit better. It, well, they're also more comfortable, I'm sure, too, like in their own space. Absolutely. I try to figure out what they need first as opposed to what they want. And I figure out what they need first, and then I fill the void. I always start people off with the basics, you know, like, okay, what's in your closet? You know, what needs to be replaced? Right. You know, what do you do for work? What do you, what do you need this for? You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's almost like I, it's, it's, I ask questions to almost talk them out of it. Like, why am I here? What do we, what are we doing today? You know, you know, just cause I always want them to make sure like, okay, are we doing this? Are we moving forward? Great. Let's make you something really beautiful. So what, speaking of making something beautiful, like how would you characterize the style of say your jackets or like your suiting? You know, it really all depends on the person that I'm dressing. You know, I mean, I, I have two different factories that, that I order from for all of my stuff. One is in Italy and the other one is in the United States. And the one in the United States is a little bit more of a structured look, a little bit more of rigid lines, very, um, just very hard edge, very, very well, tightly, tightly structured jackets. So almost more like English. Very, very English style. And then I will also, I also go through a factory out of Naples, which is super deconstructed soft shoulder so very soft shoulder almost no lining whatsoever um, a majority of it is done by hand as opposed to my to machine so when you wear an italian suit it breaks in a little bit differently um as as like any of the seams that are done by hand as opposed to done by machine when they're done by hand, uh, especially on the jacket, when you're wearing it, it kind of breaks in a little bit, almost like a pair of jeans Yeah, where you can kind of feel. Well, the stitches will move a little bit more. Right. The stitches will move a little bit more and it'll kind of eventually adhere to your body. You know? Right. That's what I love about, for me, that's what I love about Italian clothing is just, it's, it's just, it's done with just this effortless flair and, right. uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I think Italy's Italy's slogan or sales pitch should be "We woke up like this," right? (laughs) (laughs) Because because Italians, when it comes to effortless flair, I think they are the best at it. And I've always looked up to them for inspiration. Don't get me wrong, though. I love the English. I love their structure. I love their choice of colors and patterns. And even, you know, even the East Coast American uh, manufacturers and designers, you know, I love it all. But sure. But for me, Italy definitely has my uh, has my heart. Yeah, that's awesome. So what's been sort of kind of the, the hardest part for you launching your own business? I mean, other than like knowing nothing on the forefront, but since... 2013 what's been difficult i guess if anything since you do this on your own you know i mean i don't have a team so i'd say the number one thing that comes to my mind is doubt you know you definitely doubt yourself uh, a little bit more when you don't have a team behind you that are you know if you have a as they say, a case of the mondays there's nobody to come and cheer you up at the water cooler and say hey man 
you looking a little down and are you doing all right? You know, and there's nobody to really check on you. So you become really secluded in your own mind when you don't have a support and a network um, telling you that, no, you're not crazy. You're doing fine. So what's been easy for you? What's been easy for me? Nothing. Nothing's easy. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, what's been easy for me? Being receptive to change, being receptive to evolving as a clothing company, going with, you know, going with the style changes. Because for men, um, the fabrics as you know, won't really change all that much. Like, right. you know, Glenn plaid is just as relevant now as it was 70 years ago. What changes is the cut, the cut and the fit of the suit that we're making at that point in time. I think what's easy for me is, um, knowing, knowing when trends are going to come back, but sometimes I'm a little bit too far ahead of the curve. You know, like I started wearing and like this is the stupidest thing, but I love overalls. I have multiple pairs of overalls. I've been wearing them for years and people think they're like, Hey man, like hillbilly. What's up hillbilly, you know, <laughs> but I'll take my, I'll, I'll buy a new pair of overalls and I'll take them into my tailor shop and taper them down. You know, so they're not so wide in the leg and right. I'll throw a big fat cuff in the bottom of them and I'll rock them with vans and a t-shirt. And, uh, you know, I've been doing that for years and years and years. Two years ago, they just started coming out through like different, you know, different companies like Abercrombie and Polo and sure. All these different brands all of a sudden started putting out really cool, distressed overalls. And jumpsuits and jumpsuits. Yeah. yeah. And, um, I would just take anytime I've ever seen that I've always screenshotted it and send it to the person that made fun of me and be like, I guess I'm ahead of my time. Right. Right. But not really. Well, everything's, you know, it's cyclical cyclical. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm not really, I really don't consider myself like a, like a fashion trendsetter. I just know that things are going to come back. Sure. They always do. Right. You know, the, the skinny mohair suits from the sixties Mad Men era, they came back. Right. You know, pinstripe, cashmere, linen, all that fun stuff. You know, I sell, you know, I sell, I, I sell moleskin. 90% of the people that are listening to this show right now don't, don't know even what it know is. what moleskin is. <laughs> that was huge in the late nineties. Right. When I worked for J crew in like 99, <laughs> moleskin chinos man yeah that was that everybody had the moleskin chinos yeah i still make them i still make them for people and they love them because of how soft they are yeah but they're a little bit more tailored like a jean and i also instead of doing like side slash pockets i'll do top loading pockets just like on a pair of jeans so like a five pocket even cut right like a five pocket cut with instead of doing a back patch pocket i'll do a slash pocket like a bees and back pocket my guys love them they're like they are soft as butter they're thick and heavyweight like a jean but they're they're cut a little bit differently and they're you can bump into shit 
and you won't destroy them. And right. They keep you warm. In they're the not too time. delicate. Yeah. No, they're not too delicate. So for a guy like you, then, I mean, right now you're wearing old school skate high Vans, uh-huh. jeans that are cuffed at least three inches. <laughs> yeah. A black t-shirt and a beanie. Yeah. Sleeve tattoos. Yeah. So most people wouldn't look at you and think suit, first not, of all. Not Although at all. nowadays, it's almost like a lot of the guys rocking suits all are tatted up. Yeah. You know, when I go to the trade shows in Vegas and New York, when I go to the, you know, Magic or, sure, you know, any of those shows and I meet other people that are like me, normally we're not in suits when we go to the trade shows. So we see each other. Because either A, we know each other personally just from being in the industry or we'll DM each other from, you know, like we follow each other's social media pages. And then when we see each other in real life, we're like, oh, you're a, you're a skater. You're a skater. Yeah. You know, it lets me know that I'm not the only one out there doing what I do. That looks like me, you know, that's awesome. Cause sometimes when you're all by yourself, you kind of feel like you're an outcast. You know, until you see somebody else that's just like you or kind of like you, you know, that says, you know, no, you're not the only one. And we're just like you and that validation, that validation. And uh, it also lets you know that you need to keep doing what you love. Sure. Yeah. You know, because I, I love what I'm doing. I love I love getting a box in. And it's full of clothing that it is, that's not even for me. You know, right? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I tear it open like like it's Christmas, and you know, I'm I'm excited to deliver it to my clients every single time. It's fun being able to throw something on that I created and collaborated with, yeah, you know, with the with the client. Makes them feel special too because they know that they had their hand in on picking certain details, you know. And so any type of quote unquote imperfections or flaws that that particular client thinks that they have, I'm going to build something around that Yeah. because it's not custom clothing just isn't for the individual that just has the financial means to do so. Sometimes when the client gets to me, it's because they've exhausted all options of other, of, of other ways to go about buying clothing. Also, too, I take the individual into accountability and think to myself, that's not going to look good on them. I'm going to tell them no. And I remember, you know, and, and this happens from time to time. I'll tell somebody no, and they look at me like, oh, like, oh, he, he gives a shit about me. He, he, right. he really, he, he is really doing his job, you know? And I always think to myself, I would be doing them a disservice because if I decide to say, yeah, go for it. And we make it and it goes on their back and they're out in public and they're walking around. I don't want anybody to walk up to him and go, what the fuck is that? Right. And you should get your money back. Yeah. You know, I want every person to see them and say, you look amazing. And I want them to feel their best. Cause as you know, when you wear your, when you wear a new pair of shoes or a new blazer and you're getting ready to walk out the front door and you take that one look in the mirror before you're walking out the door and you say to yourself, Oh damn, I look good today. It really does change your, 
your your approach to when you're dealing with people face to face, you know, and that puts something in your head like, yeah, I can I can go kick ass today, you know, yeah. instead of I'm a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about how cars have played a role in your life. Like you, you've owned a bunch of Porsches, right? I've owned Porsches, Rovers, um, old English MGs, Triumphs, and uh, when I was. It's, well, let me back it up to my days in Los Angeles. So the area that I grew up in, um, you know, I lived in Lawndale and born in Torrance. And so you kind of run around those neighborhoods when you're younger and you get a lot of diversity out of L.A. And, you know, we're talking like early 80s, early to mid 80s. So you got the you got the layover from the 50s and 60s hot rod culture and then it went into, you know, the late 60s, early 70s muscle cars. And out of that, you got low riders. So you got that car culture running through Los Angeles big time. And growing up in that, I had a stepdad who was really into British cars. His big thing were old Triumph Norton motorcycles, um, Austin Healy's. And, you know, Aston Martins. And so when I was a kid, he had a 52 Willys Jeep and a 66 Austin Healey MK3, which, you know, I mean, that was the, that was the car in the video. Um, everybody wants to rule the world by tears for fears. Bob Dylan was like my stepfather's, you know, Bob Dylan and Neil Young was, was my stepdad's real kind of influences and so the old triumph just kind of bled into him and then it bled into me as I started getting older and getting into you know cars and motorcycles and and moving down to Southern California or further down Southern California into San Diego in the early 90s and you know growing up in the skate industry you know going from you know riding around on a skateboard to riding around on motorcycles and and then it just kind of evolved into like, oh, okay, you made a little bit more money. And so, you know, what's the next biggest, baddest thing? And when that started rolling around, then the Ducati started coming in. And in between all of that, you kind of pepper it in with a bunch of fun cars, old trucks, the Porsches, the six, you know, the 911s, the, the you know, the, the early Porsche 911s. We had a couple of those. Um, 60, 68 MGs and Triumph Spitfires and the 914 Porsches. And you just kind of, whatever you can get your hands on, whether it be a basket case or in decent condition or a rolling chassis at that time, you know, you just have enough friends around that are just looking at it, waiting to get their mitts on it to help you paint it, bang out the body, you know, fiberglass here, cut out the rust there. It was just fun and it was cool and it was community and we all had a common bond and we all loved, uh, you know, run and ride together. And, and, and that was, uh, that was, that was a fun, fun part. And then as you start getting older, you, you know, you start making a little bit more money and start like, Oh, okay, what's next? I've always liked Euro. Uh, I've always had always had a lot of fun with it when it came to sports cars. It was never really um, an American sports car type of guy. I always just you know always liked to to tool around with those. Yeah, for sure. What um, so you're also into music, obviously as well. Uh, what kind of music are you into now? 
Um, I'm gosh, so much, you know, when I was in my late teens, early twenties, you know, I'm 44 now. And I always kind of frowned on the fact that guys, my age or people, people in general, my age now would look back to the music that was coming out when I was that age. And they would just kind of frown on it. Like, ah, that's not real music. Listen to Led Zeppelin or this or that. And I'm like, well, I do listen to that. And the new bands that I'm listening to now were influenced by those, by those guys. And then when you listen to Led Zeppelin, you find out, oh, okay, who were they influenced by? Yeah, I think that's every generation. Yeah, right? uh, yeah, but I'm glad now that I can find new music as a 44 year old guy. I can find new music. I'm really into this kind of spacey new age group called Monster Rally, and uh, there's this girl singer. Uh, that's out there right now. She goes by Soccer Mommy, and she's this very eclectic, spacey, dreamy sound, you know, type of music. I love that when I'm at home, uh, but when um, when I strap on the guitar, I have always been fond of loud, rude, aggressive rock and roll, punk rock music. You're wearing a Misfits t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I grew up on, you know, I grew up on punk rock and gangster rap and heavy metal. And uh, I still love it to this day. I still listen to it to this day. You know, I'm always, you know, looking for, you know, a fun new show to go to or a fun new band to to kind of, you know, experience and dive into. And when I find a group that is brand new to me. I try to dive into them and find out, you know, everything about them. But I played music since I was a kid. Um, my first stepfather was also a musician being a blue, he was a big bluegrass guy, but you know, he always had around his house, he always had plenty of instruments to be able to pick and choose from, whether it be horns or guitars or, you know, just various string instruments, percussive instruments. And I picked up probably one of the you know one of the least gone for instruments at that time I grabbed the bass because I was always I always loved rhythm I always loved you know I always loved listening to old soul music when I was growing up you know James Brown and Al Green and Stax and Parliament Funkadelic Zapp and Roger and all those you know all those different eclectic groups but one thing that a lot of them had in common was just the funky bass, you know? And, and what's interesting is I'm not a funky bass player. I just loved listening to it. And that's what, that's what drove me to pick it up and to, you know, carry it on and take it into punk rock music. That's awesome. Well, back to sort of like the fashion front, you're really into shoes. Yeah. Uh, too much into shoes. Um, so what were you wearing as a kid? Um, I was either wearing airwalks or chucks or vans, you know, pretty stuff much to skate in stuff to skate in, um, stuff that, you know, yeah, I was going through a pair of shoes a month. So up until, you know, I could work and, and afford my own shoes, uh, you know, pretty much whatever, whatever was for on sale <laughs> at the time, that's what I got. And, uh, I think, it's funny, you know, certain certain things that stay with me from when I was a kid, you know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up, so you're either short on shoes or you're short on jackets. 
And I have a sickening jacket collection for a man. <laughs> to even, and I'm not talking suit jackets. I'm just talking just jackets yeah, in outerwear. general. Yeah. And, um, and I probably have, a, I don't even know how many pairs, different pairs of shoes I have to this day. But, um, but back in those days, it was, yeah, it was Airwalks. And it was the early Airwalks that still look like Vans before they got into the the Airwalk prototype and Enigma and the Airwalk 540s that, you know, like Tony Hawk was wearing and skating in. So as soon as that came out, then of course I had to have them and I did. And every other kid on the block had them as well. So what is, what's in the collection these days then? Um, let Alan Edmonds, Doc Martens to Magnani still wear a lot of vans. It just stuck with me. I love the old school skate highs. I have a few pairs in different colors and the the traditional eras, the 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 top sider vans. Doesn't matter whatever color I decide to go with at the time that I'm in the van shop. That just you know that's a Southern California thing too. You know, I I when I come back to the West Coast, when I came back to the West Coast after living in D.C., you know, I mean, I just. I looked all around and I was like, Oh, I'm home. I'm, you know, and, and I rocked vans when I was in DC too, you know, when I was working at Brooks brothers and I would leave the train station wearing a three piece suit, wearing vans, skateboarding through the city on my way to work to hang up my skateboard, put, take my shoes off, put a nice pair of, you know, polished black cap toe, you know, Alden's or some type of Brooks Brothers shoe that, that, you know, was offered to me while I was working there. And that was my life. It's funny. I, um, I've always been an authentics guy, you know, not the eras. I've always gotten Vans authentics yeah. as the style to wear. And I remember distinctly, like, I don't know, this is probably a decade ago, like 10 years ago. I was in New York city wearing my black authentics, got a pair on today. Mm-hmm. And I just remember there was this group that was just huddled around and um, they started laughing and, th- and they said something that sounded familiar, like um, Mount Washington High School or something like that. They, I think they said something about Mount Washington. And I turned around and I was like, are you guys talking about California? And they're like, yeah, where, you're not from here. Are you from California? I was like, yeah, how did you, why? They were like, well, you're wearing Vans. Yeah. <laughs> and like now you go to New York City and like, everybody's wearing vans yeah it's so funny how that happened but like it used to be like i stuck out like a sore thumb 10 years ago in new york because i had authentics on yeah and i remember um new york especially in the in the street culture and in the city culture um vans hadn't really caught on not for a while there and because there really wasn't widely offered in new york for a long time and what even the skate kids out there, they didn't wear skate shoes. Airwalk and Etnies and Osiris really weren't that prevalent out there, but they were wearing Jordans and, you know, right, right. you know, the old Patrick Ewing model, you know, high tops, because that's what they were skating in. So to see, I'm sure to see a kid in Vans, they're like, whoa yeah totally <laughs> plus also vans aren't going to keep your, your they're, they're not going to keep your feet warm in the winter time that's true they're canvas yeah <laughs> there's <laughs> you don't want to you don't in early january in new york city you, you really don't want to be wearing vans at all <laughs> yeah for sure what um 
so what do you do in your free time? You've mentioned tennis, I think, to me before. Do you play a little bit of tennis? Yeah, so my girlfriend, Alex, grew up in Coronado, and that was kind of her life growing up. You know, she grew up, you know, around people that owned boats and played tennis and golf. And one thing that kind of carried over with her over the years was the love for tennis. And I have a few friends that play tennis that are avid tennis players. And I've gone out with them in the past, borrowed a racket, used my crappy, you know, Nike shoes that aren't even supposed to be on the tennis court and would run around for an hour having balls hit at me almost a hundred miles an hour to the (laughs) point where I was like, Hey, maybe tennis isn't for me. And for our anniversary, uh, Alex bought me a tennis racket and was like, Hey, I'm not the best tennis player. I just want to chase, you know, I just want to chase tennis balls for an hour or two and break a sweat. And here's a, here's a racket. It was wrapped. It was beautiful. And I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. And I went out there and I just started having a blast and I love it. Well, listen, man, I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, is there anything else you wanted to promote? Uh, as far as promotion is concerned, like what? Is, what's your Instagram handle and all that jazz? Instagram handle is Waters Atelier, A T E L I E R. You can check me out at watersatelier.com. Uh, two things that I'm piggybacking on these two projects. One is called Hustlecraft, and it's a really cool effort by my girlfriend Alex Ott of Crumb City PR. And it's just a collective effort to be able to get hustlers all under one roof to do a great talking panel and also other fellow hustlers to bring out their product and to sell. Cool, man. Jason, really appreciate it. Thanks, buddy. I really appreciate us doing, uh, what is this, episode two or or, <laughs> 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 or, or a carry on from season the other two. Season, yeah, yeah. Season two. Um, no, I love it. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, for sure, man. All right. Catch you soon. Take care. I'd like to thank Jason again for taking the time to sit down to chat with me. Um, it was super fun. Um, as always, thanks to Clear Audio for the use of their headphones, as well as to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for providing the title track. Uh, If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the podcast online. It will help us out here um, with growing the listenership. So I sincerely appreciate all you guys' help. I will catch you next week.